Welcome to CPP Chat, the other only podcast for C++ developers by C++ developers. I very much want to thank uh, our guests and those in the CPP Chat channel for joining us at this hour. Our goal for this week's episode is to have a show title of When? Uh, before we continue, I want to read this week's disclaimer. Warning, certain home improvement projects are inherently dangerous, and even the most benign tool can cause serious injury or death if not used properly. Always read and follow instruction manuals and safety warnings. You must particularly be particularly careful when dealing with electricity. Always use common sense. So I'd like to introduce uh, my co-host and our producer, Phil Nash. Phil is just back from Rappersville. Uh, Phil, you want to give us a, a trip report on what happened at Rappersville? Hi, yeah, thanks, John. Hello, everyone. I'm not going to give a, a full trip report because plenty of those have been written online, uh, including one by JetBrains, which I contributed to, because one of my colleagues, uh, Timur, was also there. So we'll, we'll refer you to that in the show notes. Just to give a quick summary, though, because I think this is a really important meeting. Uh, it's actually my first one, so I don't have much to compare against, but the, the word is that it was, it was quite important, although not a lot maybe appears to have happened from the outside. It's mostly been progressing things because... The, the next meeting in San Diego is going to be the last one where uh, we can get anything in for, for C++20. Uh, we'll be able to iterate it a bit more after that, but actually getting in in the first place, um, that's the cutoff. So there's a big push to get all the big items in as much as possible this time. We, we had some success with that and, uh, and some um, we're going to revisit in San Diego. So just to go through the, the big ones very quickly. Concepts, uh, the, the core of that actually got in last time. So that's that's there to stay. So now it's a case of whether we can get the terse syntax in. And this time we had uh, two competing proposals. The uh, the original one, which I think was iterated a bit by uh, by Bjorn, um, and also an alternative, which is largely the same, but with some, also some important differences, presented by uh, Herb Sutter. Both of them were received fairly positively, I think, but uh, we didn't get a consensus on which direction to go in. So. Uh, now that they're out in the in the wild, I think we'll have a, a chance to to look at that a bit more and hopefully reach a decision in San Diego. So maybe we'll still get uh, syntax in C plus plus twenty. Then we had uh, coroutines. A we had a competing proposal for that as well, which uh, didn't get much interest. So the original coroutines TS was uh, was passed into core. Um, that's the uh, sort of lower level group that just deals with uh, the wording uh, got through there as well and then at the end of the week uh, the plenary session where the the official votes accounted um, it didn't quite pass at that stage uh, there wasn't consensus so that's going to come back again in San Diego for a bit more work so that's still a bit up in the air hopefully we'll, we'll get that one um, and then modules uh, there were two competing proposals the original TS that's still uh, active and then uh, Google's alternative Atom proposal. And last time, I believe, there was a, uh, a suggestion that the, the authors get together and, and try to merge the, uh, the essential parts of those. Um, and that's happened, and that was presented in, in Rappersville. Um, I thought that went uh, quite well overall. The, the authors definitely seemed to be happy with it. Uh, there was generally positive feeling in the room, but uh, we didn't quite get a consensus on that either. So I think there are still a few open questions, and, and some people feel it's a bit of a compromise. So I think that's going to come back also in, in San Diego and hopefully we'll, we'll get somewhere. But that, that's obviously going to feed into our discussion a bit later as well. Uh, and the other big one was the, um, the graphics proposal came back. And this has been really divisive. Um, a lot of controversy over this. Uh, and I think it, um, in Rappersville, this finally, in its current form at least, uh, died. We're not going to be progressing with it at this point. Um, that's not to say it won't come back in the future. But again, this, this feeds into the whole um, issue of, of package managers, dependency managers, some people feeling that uh, large uh, libraries like uh, like graphics are, are better uh, out in the community, but easily accessible through package managers. So um, that, that's why a lot of people voted against it. Uh, there are other issues as well. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to that as well. So um, that sort of sets us up for it's the final session uh, on the well on the Friday. Uh, we had I'm not sure if that's absolute the first meeting, but it's certainly direction setting of uh, SGE 15, 
which is a new study group. I think it was started last time uh, for tooling. And um, just to put my uh, my JetBrains hat on for a moment. Here it is. <laughs> Uh, note to self, I need to actually get a, um, a proper JetBrains hat. Um, <laughs> so, since I work for JetBrains, obviously I'm interested in tooling, so I joined SG15 on that basis. And certainly those sort of tools do come into it, but right for now, the um, the focus does seem to be on, on package managers, dependency management, because that's really what the community is asking for. There's a big call for this to be taken seriously by the standards committee. But... There's definitely been some confusion over exactly what SG15's role is here, what it can and can't do. So um, I just want to actually read what um, Titus Winters, who's the, the chair of the group, said on a, uh, a mailing list about it. In response to a question, he says that, uh, practically speaking, I expect SG15 to be primarily a clearinghouse for discussion between the community and the committee on questions of tooling and ecosystem, so in general. The output from SG15 may primarily be standing documents, position papers, etc., and very little of the normal WG21 output, i.e. specifications. So we're not expecting a sort of a broad specification for a package manager, but we'll, we'll definitely you know, set direction and you know, community consensus as much as possible. And also in a, a tweet recently, he said, um, it isn't necessarily within ISO's purview to dictate such things, talking about specification for a package manager, uh, certainly outside of WG21's normal domain. We'll work to make it happen, but it's more likely to be de facto standard than blessed by the standard itself. Now, a lot of this is sort of you know, still evolving wording. Some of this is new territory for us. So um, it's not entirely clear what's going to happen yet, but we definitely have the interest of the study group and that this idea of a clearinghouse, I think it's more that we have a lot of the community leaders in the group who can sort of work to make things happen and facilitate communication between existing authors. A little bit like what we're going to be doing today, in fact. So probably a good point to introduce our guests. We have, um, we have uh, Diego, um, who is uh, one of the, the authors of uh, the Conan Package Manager. Do you want to introduce yourself, Diego? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you, Phil. Thank, thanks for inviting us. To this show. So yeah, I'm Diego and I've been working in, in Conan. I was one of the Conan founders uh, since two years and a half full-time now. And I've been working in package management for C++ like six, the last six years. And yeah, I think this uh, study group uh, 15 is very interesting for us, of course, because we are in this, in this scenario. And Conan is, is actually working with all build systems. It's, it is integrating both to create packages and to consume packages in any build system. So anything that could be improved, any standard paper that could uh, outline any common interface to any subsystem would be, would be huge for us. So we, we are really looking forward to, to seeing some, some advance, some consensus in the community uh, for this. Yeah, thanks, thanks Diego. We'll, we'll come back to some of those points, I think. Uh, then we also have um, uh, Boris. Do, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, hi everyone. Thanks, Phil. Um, so yeah, my name is Boris. I work on the, another solution for you know C plus plus package management and build problems called Build Two. In a nutshell, it's a it's an integrated uh, build tool chain. Probably the easiest way is to compare it to Cargo. So if you ever used Cargo, that's what we are trying to do for C plus plus. So it's quite a bit different approach compared to other. Uh, attempts in this space uh, and go going back so at, at this G15 uh, in Appersville uh, I gave a little demo and the goal of that demo was to actually I, I think as a as a community we realize dependency management package management is C++'s problem but we don't quite agree what exactly we mean by that so my goal at this G15 was to show how it might work and also going back to uh, your point, Phil, about uh, what the result of SG15 is. I think it's 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 good to keep in mind that SG stands for study group. I think we should just study existing practices and as at least as a first step and understand exactly you know what we are trying to achieve here. Yeah, thank you. Um, again, we're we're gonna revisit some of those points. I'm sure. And then we have uh, Peter Bindles, who, 
has actually been on, I think, uh, two previous shows, but only the, the live ones at um, C++ now. Is that right, Peter? Okay, so Peter's going to try something and, and come back to us. So there's a comment I want to make about kind of the direction, because I, I thought, I think one of one of the concerns I have about the Standards Committee is that uh, the Standards Committee is a hammer. In other words, it knows how to do something. We we have a feature that we want to put in a library or in the language, and we have a process for doing that. You know, there's some growing pains with that process, but the process is proven to work. And so now we have a problem, and that problem is, well, we've identified, it's a problem we've had for a while, in bills, packages, something like that. And so we want to hit it with the same hammer because that's the hammer we have. That's the only one that we have that works. And I think that an early acknowledgement that this hammer isn't really the right tool for the solving this problem is, is a good thing. And recognizing that probably what we're going to produce is not a language specification, which is what we know how to do. I think recognizing that up front is a really good thing. And this seems really positive to me because this is one of the things that I've kind of worried about. And in fact, I think that's part of why the, uh, the 2d graphics proposal was kind of misguided because I think it was an attempt to solve a different problem. And that problem was how to make it easier to teach C plus plus in colleges. And we don't know how to, we don't have any tools to do that. And so what we do have is a tool to add something to the standard. So let's add something to the standard that makes it easier to teach C++. And that's just, that was just crazy. But I'm, I'm, I'm loving that the upfront acknowledgement of, of this is that our output may in fact be a standing document or a set of guidelines or something like that. Because one of the things that the committee does have, which can be a problem, maybe it's not a problem for a couple of small companies, but if you've got big companies talking to each other, there are legal problems with that. And the ISO committee sidesteps those problems. You know, if Microsoft and Apple and Google were to get in a room together and talk about how people should use build tools, there's all sorts of legal issues with that, right? But if they do it under under an ISO study group, well, that's something that we can do. And I think uh, recognizing that having a forum for a lot of different people just to get together and talk and raise issues and say, you have a solution that you think works well for you, but what about these use cases or what about this? I think that's really healthy. And I'm really excited about this because I've, I've told people a number of times that I think the biggest technical problem facing the C++ community right now is the package management problem. It, it, it's just a huge point of friction for what we do. And um, I'm not in a position to even really give any useful ideas. I mean, when we talk about language features or library, I'm I'm endlessly willing to spout off on what we should do, right? But in this area, I'm completely at a loss. And so I'm anxious to hear from you guys. So I'll shut up now and let you guys talk a little bit about how we should go about solving these problems. <laughs> uh, well, maybe – I think maybe I'll just, uh, you know, reiterate or – maybe state what why why it's so hard in C++ as a starting point like compared to Rust you know Rust in a sense if you think about it Rust uh, designed uh, a build tool chain as a side project right they, they, they were building a language and then they decide hey let's let's also make a build system for it and it's by now you know even the Go guys acknowledge it's it's a golden standard basically I think the reason why we cannot it, and the question is you know, a C++ community is much larger. Why can't we do the same? You know, those guys did it as a side project. Can't we do it, you know, properly? And I think the reason is that there is so much variance in C++. You know, we, we, we basically, as a C++ community, we are trying to sit on 20 different chairs. You know, we have 20 different build systems. We now have probably at least 5, 10 package managers. So I think that that is probably one of the main reasons why but, but the it's ICIN, so difficult. Uh, I think it's not because of the variance that we have many different build systems. It's because of the inertia. I mean, C++ is an enterprise language. And Rust right now is a, I don't know, a startup. It's a trendy hipster language used for small things. I know companies right now, they are migrating to CMake after 10 years of pain. So they have been dealing with their own build system or a legacy build system. And they're moving to CMake right now. So the timings that C++ uh, ecosystem uses are huge. And that's, that's the reason. It's not because of, there are many of them. It's because changing to a new one will take a decade. I think Peter is back with us. Welcome back, Peter.
should I do my introduction now? Okay. Um, so I'm working on Accio and Evoke. Uh, I started with build systems and uh, tooling based on the idea that I want to be able to build my own software in some kind of easy way. And the systems that I've seen so far are basically just not sufficient as far as I can tell. There's CMake, which everybody just loves to hate. And there's a reason why it's so popular, because it's actually the best that we have so far that supports everything. And then there are uh, separate solutions for different environments. There are make files that you could use, and they all have different corner cases. So I tried to set up with the design of make and then trying to improve on that because it's the one that has the least repetition. And based on that, I found out that actually most of the stuff that you're configuring in make is the stuff that you can hard code in the build system because it barely changes. And most of the stuff that you're not telling make is the stuff that actually should be in a, in a build system. So I scrapped that project, started another one, and... Well, hang on, hang on. What, what, give me an example of something that we're not telling make that should be in the build system. Tell me, specifically, give me some examples of that. What do you mean? Oh, specifics. Um, so the things that we're telling make are how to take a pattern and turn it into a build command, which is stuff that in uh, CMake, for example, your built, uh, your, your tool set configuration would do. And that is something that you do one time just to configure your tool set. The thing that you're not able to tell make is how to do transitive dependencies. For example, I've tried that in make and it's, it's just about impossible. Uh, the thing is that if you want to do that in make, you're going to have to make basically variable substitution into, into an art. I tried it and it, it's as bad as you think it is. Which means that the things that we're trying to solve are not the problems that need solving. The problems that need solving are the ones that make dependencies easy. And that's both internal and external dependencies. So given a project at work, I started off with making internal dependencies easy. We had the policy of taking any third-party library and just putting it in a local folder. So as far as externals, they are also internal as far as that build system goes. And as far as I can tell, Given unique names of headers, you can just make a complete map of everything, discover all the dependencies, and build the entire thing without any inputs. Telling that to your boss is not going to work. So I tried that, but they basically thought that it wasn't going to be a successful way of doing things, especially if you say, hey, let's make our own custom build system and uh, apply that to our entire code base that our company depends on. Uh, so I made a uh, tool that does that and then extracts the information from it for, uh, I think at the moment we're at 60 to 80% of the code base. So right now we are still using CMake, but we have replaced 60 to 80% of the uh, CMake list that we had to handcraft with things that are just auto-generated. And things that are, as far as dependencies go, completely correct. And for the company, that uh, seems to help. Uh, can, can I maybe just summarize what what my understanding of your approach is? You're essentially taking uh, you're using the here the inclusion graph as a depend as a build dependency graph in a nutshell. Is it about in a nutshell? Graph? Yes. I am taking the abstraction that John Lakos also does, which is to take a bunch of header files and making them into a module, and then doing the dependencies on modules or components. Uh, I have a question. How, how do you deal with the implementation thing? I mean, you have uh, some declaration in, in a header. How do you know in which file that declaration is defined? I have no idea how, how, would, how I would do that. But it's necessary to... Because the language doesn't require you to. To define your build, it's necessary to know in which, in which files do, do you have to compile. For example, typical implementation, you have a file for Windows and a file for Linux. Yes. With yes. two different implementations uh, with of the same declaration that is in just one, one header file. How do you know which file to, to include in your build for that operating system? In this case, I would include both and ask the user to somehow solve that problem in code. So like a feature test macro in the, in the implementation file? Yeah. Okay. So that's the thing. It's uh, essentially making it into a prescriptive build system. As in, it is going to be doing these things and is going to be looking at your code like this. But that means that you can solve all the problems that you have in code instead of in build system formats. And as far as I know, most developers are good at code and not good at build systems. <laughs> so it seems like a fair trade-off. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> 
So I, I didn't quite understand what, what you just suggested, Diego, and what you agreed, Peter. You put, you put something in your implementation file to say, by the way, use this implementation file for this situation. Exactly what's going on there? Well, the solution that people have tried uh, before is to have uh, separate implementation files for separate operating systems. So you would have a socket implementation for Windows.cpp and a socket implementation for Linux.cpp. And this build system does not handle that case. So your options are either building with something else or making the source files such that they compile with uh, that you can compile all of them and get the right result. Yeah, and what do you do? Because uh, a typical case that I I find many times is companies that they have one implementation for let's say their closed source product and they have another implementation that is optimized for a certain architecture and another implementation for a different I don't know communication channel or everything. It's something that cannot be defining in, in code because it's something that is very from the top bottom approach. I mean, the, the, the person or the continuity creation say, I'm going to create this product with this specification and that's all. So you cannot decide that in code. It's something that comes from the top. Right. But you can, in the, when you invoke it, you can say, you know, build this and then do a, a definition to say this is the debug build or this is the closed source build or this is the Linux build. And then your code, in other words, I think what, what Peter was saying is all code is always compilable, even though the way it's compilable to say, you know, if def Linux, do nothing. What's that? Yeah, so if dev optimize it, if dev whatever, and a lot yeah. of if devs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think what Diego is saying is that with Peter's approach, you have to, to propagate all your configuration information all the way into your C++ code. Because yeah. that's that's what build system sees, which which in some cases might be uh, untidy. I would say. I agree that it would be untidy in some cases. I would hope that most engineers have the the sense to put all the abstractions in the bottom end layers of your source code, which means that most of the code in this way would be protected from whatever details you have. And you need that complexity somewhere, so it's going to be in the build system, which you are not familiar with, or it's going to be in the code. Yeah, but I think it's a, it's a matter of company structure. So I think it's doable in some companies, depends on the teams that are involved. But there are many companies that teams are very separated and then they have just an integration teams that is taking the parts of uh, everyone else. And for them, that would be a nightmare because they, they would have to synchronize with all the teams to, hey, you have, I need to specify this defining your I say, wait, I'm just delivering my optimized implementation. Don't, don't get me messed with a lot of defines that I have to care about. These are not related to my work. So, but that's oh. the same discussion you already have as soon as you have an integrated system. You have a giant uh, tree that has all the current versions of everything, and they need to work for every target platform that you have, which means that if you're submitting to that a part of code that doesn't work on half the platforms, you're submitting broken work. No, but I, I understand what Theo is saying because I've worked in an environment that was kind of like that. We had lots and lots of code that was out there, um, and it was in a shared repository with dispersed ownership and we could include those packages and we could in fact specify how they were going to be built but we couldn't modify the source because we didn't own that source so we could you know we could build it with whatever flag we wanted to build it with but we couldn't uh, we couldn't modify the source without i mean it was painful some of the packages were kind of old and basically had no owner and so that was a that was a problem which i'm not saying that peter's approach is, is fundamentally broken. I'm just saying that I think any approach we come up with is going to have some challenges and it's just best to identify what those are. Um, I do like the, the basic idea that Peter's introducing of saying, you know, let's put the work in code because engineers understand code and, um, and we could in fact create a, a set of guidelines. I mean, I don't mean we, I mean, you know, that could be something that SG 15 would do is to say, this is, this is the set of canonical macros that people should expect of this format or something like that. Documenting that kind of stuff and explaining how it work would be a useful work. Um, it's, it's not going to fix every problem, but if all we did was fix a lot of our problems, we'd fix a lot of our problems. <laughs> that is uh, part of what uh, I've proposed to talk to CPPCon about this. And part of the talk is about having a prescriptive versus a descriptive build system. And the big issue is that if you have a descriptive build system, people will use it to handle any and every corner case you have, which means you basically need to have a Turing complete 
programming language as a build system. See also CMake. And that means that it can handle everything and anything without changing your code or telling you to do something differently. And for some people that might be the right solution. The idea is here that if you take the opposite approach and you take the, this works for 95% of people, and that simplifies things so much that those 95% of people can save so much time, maybe that's a better approach, or at least a good alternative. But one of the things that you said earlier, Peter, was that the reason CMake caught on is because you could do everything with it. And what you're yeah. basically proposing is, oh, here's this thing that I hope catches on, and it satisfies 95% of the cases. And what you're going to see is that people are worried. I mean, I'm an engineer, right? I always worry about, well, what about that? What about that one time in 20 when I have to do something else and now I'm, now what do I do? Right? Well, yeah, that is one of the questions that's uh, big on my mind as well. Given that I'm making a system that I know is not going to do 100% by design, how am I going to convince anybody to risk that 5% not being them? Um, as far as I have planned right now, the uh, solution would be to have a export to uh, basically the common build systems. It already has an export to CMake from uh, the code base that I had before, and I intend to fully leave that in place. As in, it does what it does, and if at some point you discover that it's not good enough, it doesn't uh, handle the quarter case, or you need to get a build result out this week for some really weird build setup that requires hacking, then take the CMake export, and you're basically guaranteed to get the same result from that, and then you can do whatever you can in CMake. So your build system is essentially a meta-meta build system, right? An hyper-build hyper system. Uh, at some point it had been called CCBake, yes. Yeah, if I may, be, may add, uh, in build 2, what we have, I would call a hybrid uh, build system. So the idea is that it's mostly declarative, but as you said, in 5% of cases, you actually need to get down and write some code. So, And I think that's probably the most realistic approach to take because I, I don't think you can expect a, a, a you know a general purpose or standard build system that simply says well we cannot handle five percent well t tell us a little bit about your system boris i i feel like i understand a little bit what peter's doing but um but what what is the approach of build two what are you trying to do so in, in a nutshell build two is is a fixed make we essentially make was designed 30 40 years ago for for you know there was a single operating system uh it was made for building simple utilities and if you try to use it currently for 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 these purposes it still works perfectly fine for example i generate all my slides from from a tech document uh with make and there's not no problem with it but it's but it's not it's not able to handle today's complexity. So what essentially built to the build system? Well, built to the project is a is an integrated build tool chain. It consists of the build system at the bottom. There is the package manager for package consumption, and there's a project dependency management which handles the, the entire development lifecycle. You know, creation, management of dependencies, testing, and delivery. So build system is essentially a, a make for the current that, that is able to handle current complexity. So we, we still have a notion of targets, prerequisites. So un, unlike, say, CMake, it's not what the, the CMake model I would call a black box. It's basically, okay, you want to build an executable, say it's an executable and list the list of sources. Uh, in build two, it's it's you know an executable is a target, and you list the list of prerequisites, which might be sources and so on. Uh, if you need to build another executable in the same project, you can. And if you need to build an executable and a library in the same project, you can. You know, if you want to build a Rust or some other thing or compile a, a tech document, you can do that as well. So in in that sense, it's a, it has what I would call a concept of build, similar to make. So that's built to in a nutshell. Dependencies and outputs. But you've added on uh, a package management kind of thing. So I can basically say, oh, I'm dependent on some boost library or I'm dependent on something from uh, Poco or something like that. Right. So on top of the build system sits the, the, uh, the package manager. So you can say, yeah, I import this library. And you know, in the manifest, you say, I want this ver at least this version or 
and so on and you know maybe list where it comes from and yeah works automatically so build 2 is an integral it's not in rust for example if you look at rust there's no separation between build system package manager and so on it's it's just a single tool in build 2 we use a little bit of a different approach uh, it's an integrated tool chain, but they can still be used separately. And there is actually a good reason for that. For example, system package management and packaging for distributions. If you look, you know, at the feedback of, of people who do that, they're not very happy with uh, package managers like Prost, where it's basically everything comes from this closed uh, ecosystem of packages. So we, we, we decided not to repeat the same. A mistake or create the same kind of problems. Okay. All right. Uh, thanks for that. Okay. So Diego, tell us a little bit about what Conan is. Uh, what What's the method? What are you? How are you trying to solve this problem? Uh, well, our approach is is very very different. Actually, we we try to integrate with, uh, as I said before, with all the existing systems. So our approach would be a. You install something, you declare the, your requirements. Hey, I want to depend on Boost, I want to depend on Poco, whatever. And you do the Conan install. And what Conan generates for you is a file. It's a file for your build system. So if you are using CMake, it will generate a CMake file for you with all the input directories, all the, all the library directories, the library names, and so on. But if you are in Visual Studio native, it will generate a properties file for you, a Visual Studio properties file for you, and so on. That's for, for many other build systems. And if you want to create packages, you call your build system. So, so uh, we are totally orthogonal to the build system because our approach is that we, we want it used right now. And using a new build system for size for companies is, is a huge investment in time. So the, the way to, to deliver this functionality to the, to the enterprise is A, you can use it right now with your build system, any build system you want to use. Because um, regarding, for example, with the Peter idea, I love it. It's an idea that I love it, and I think both make sense. The actual CMake uh, status makes sense because it allowed to make anything. What Peter is suggesting makes sense because it we it would be much easier. The problem is the gap, is the gap between the current status and where we want to go, and our approach is trying to fill that gap. Hey, let's let's decouple things, let's decouple the package management or dependency management to the build system, and let's do an interface that can can couple both in both directions, creating packages for any build systems and consuming packages for any from any build system. So this is more or less the, the, the Conan approach. And that sounds like that's kind of what Boris has also decided to do is to be able to, is to divide those two. He's doing both sides, but he's also created a division, right? So the package management is different yeah. than the, right? Um, yeah, exactly. But the idea of Conan is that you can create, for example, packages with boost, uh, build with B, uh, B2, and package Poco with CMake, they can be consumed in build two without touching their build systems at all. So on the opposite, and packages created with build two, they could be consumed from, from CMake directly, natively. So that's basically the idea we want to decouple. So then every project is, is able to change build system easily. So we are trying to bootstrap the, the framework that will allow to migrate to new build systems easily and fast in the future. Okay. It sounds like uh, it sounds like there's actually some amount of agreement, at least between you three. Um, what uh, what happened at the meeting this uh, in Rapperswell? Um, anything that anything other than just introducing you to each other? <laughs> Did any work get done? Did any progress happen? Was there any uh, any sticking point? What what happened? Uh, well, you're talking about about the SG15 meeting, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we had a pretty, pretty nice two and a half, three hour discussion. And yeah, it was mostly about package management. And um, there were a couple of, I remember there was a, a bit of a discussion whether the packages should be distributed in source or binary. And I think the agreement was pretty much uh, that probably distribution in binary at least in the as a general form of distribution is not going to scale simply because in c++ there's so many uh, 
build configurations that you normally use. You know, it's debug release 32 bit, 64 bit, different targets, different sanitizers, different uh, static analysis tools, and so on. So I think that in I think that was more of an uh, more or less an agreement. There were, however, cases brought up where you know a library is is only provided in in the binary form, you know, by a vendor and so on. But it 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 felt to me that yeah that 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 would be an exception rather than the rule. It seems like modern C is moving in the direction of templates, and that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense to try to deliver that in a binary. Right. Well, I I have to disagree partially oh. because. Yeah, you know, in Conan, we, we host a, a public repository that is actually la still, it's very small, less than 100 uh, libraries. So the last month, we, we got like 200,000 package downloads. It's more than one terabyte of downloads. And it's something that we don't recommend. All of our customers, all of our users are using uh, on-premises solution. So just the public open source repository that is used for prototyping and for testing, for evaluating Conan, it got 200,000 downloads. So it's not the distribution of binaries should be a thing. I don't recommend it at all for the public, let's say wider community. It's something that has to be provided for the companies to work. They want to reuse binaries. I, I, I don't mean the binaries shouldn't be compatible for the whole world, but there should be a mechanism to reuse binaries. Even if you're binaries, hey, I built my binary, I want to use my binary. I don't want to rebuild it from source. So the, the package management or dependency management should handle that. It's not that a binary should be useful for all the, the wider C++ community, but there should be a mechanism to do that. I disagree with you that it should be the package manager. Other yeah. than that, I completely agree. There should be a way to reuse those, those uh, binary packages. But the basic idea that I have in my mind is that if you have a package, you have source uh, a source tree, and you can build it into a binary form, and then you take the binary form of a package and link it into an executable. Which means that basically you're just stepping in halfway across the process. You have the header files, you have the binary, and at some point, uh, post-downloading your source dependencies, you will uh, basically have a binary cache for things you've already built. And you can do that with Ccache. And you can also do that with some other thing that uh, also allows things to just come from a server and never be put there. And that would be the same thing as having a binary-only dependency. I kind of disagree. I mean, it's... it's... It's not the natural thing we want to... Boost is distributed in binaries for a long time, and the number of downloads of the binaries of Boost is large. People want binaries. And, and the, the, the easy thing is, okay, I want to install Boost, please bring the binaries that I want. I don't want to use just another mechanism. Package management is already difficult. Caching a binary in the package manager is very easy. It's just storing another file. Having to use another system like a cache that might not, be, might not work in Windows, for example. Yeah, Ccache, for example, in works very well in Linux and everything, what's the mechanism to reuse binaries in Windows? Probably there is some proprietary tool out there, but there is no standard solution to reuse binaries in Windows. I recognize your point about downloading the binaries for Boost, but at the same time I'm wondering, why is it that people on Windows download a binary and use an executable to install the entire Boost system? On Mac, I think the same basic principle uh, applies for most people, and some people use Brew or Mac ports to install the source version. And on no, Linux, the basic no, idea is just to apt install the entire source distribution and build from there. But, but that's wrong. Brew is actually using binaries. Brew is caching binaries in Bintray. That is the same platform that Conan is using. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, so, so Brew, Homebrew, yeah, the binaries of Homebrew are called bottles. And bottles are stored in Bintray. That is the platform that Conan is using for the public repository too. Aha. I, th I think that it's G15, the, the one suggestion about this binary, oh, well, I, th I think there are two two different problems. First problem is when you actually can only get your library as a binary, and I think that will have to be handled, you know, out of band using a system package manager or so on. And the other problem is of building something like Boost, which might take, you know, an hour, half an hour. And I think that a common suggestion there was that you should just use distributed compilation and caching. So that 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 was, and I think that is the right answer. My question would be, if you have a distributed compilation setup, which I think we'll be getting more and more as we go on, uh, either with Ccache locally or with uh, DCC remotely, the basic idea is that you have a way to transform a source set plus a header file into a binary with a header set. If you have that already, you can use the same output stream output 
mechanism to also inject binary packages in, in much the same way. So it seems like two problems that where the solution for getting the binary result and the headers for that back to use dovetails exactly with the use of binary packages. Well, I think I think the one benefit of a caching or distributed compilation solution, and and that's the big problem in my opinion, at least, with binary packages, is that you actually make sure that you are getting exactly uh, the same build configuration as on your machine. So my my biggest issue with binary packages it's it's is that you can never be sure that what you are getting is actually compatible with you with what you are building it it might and I, that scares me you know yeah. it's 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 20 years of experience showed me that you know you will spend you know a week on a mailing list figuring out that someone built you know the application with lib stud c++ and my library with lib c++ and it works fine un, uh, uh, until you throw an exception when everything crashes so you know it works fine until it doesn't and then you have yeah. no idea what you've done exactly I totally agree with that. I would never use a binary compiled by anyone else in the world. I mean, but for your own binaries, it's a different thing. In any case, I think we are discussing a thing that should be mostly relevant yeah. right now. I don't care where my dependencies come from. I don't care if they are from a binary, if they are built from source. The difficult problem here, I think, is agreeing on the interface. Hey, my build systems want to use these dependencies. I don't care if they are system package managers and they are in USR include or or they they were brought by 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 Conan or by any other tool. I just want to have an interface to my build system to declare, hey, these are my dependencies. Use them. I w I want to introduce a new question, and that is, um, looking out at there's lots of people writing C++ libraries, which is wonderful. What what are they doing wrong, or what advice would you give them? We don't know what the ultimate solution is going to be, but how can I write my library so that it's not going to be a problem either for you as the builders or for me in the future if some standard emerges? Uh, what what guidelines can you give me? Or, or maybe there's nothing. Maybe there's so many different libraries out there that whatever build system emerges has to be able to handle anything anyway. So it doesn't matter what I do. But maybe there's something you could give me advice if I'm about to write a library or if I'm about to publish a library. What are the you know, the important do's or don'ts that, that you would, you know, if you look at a library and you see they've done something and your heart sinks, what is it that they've done? <laughs> well, my number one rule would be include all your headers with your library prefix. So that, that would be number one. Yeah. For me. You mean, you mean the file name itself has... Yeah, it uh, should be libfoo slash my header, not just my, my header. My header. I see. Okay. Um, do we have agreement on that? It looks like I'm seeing nodding heads. That seems like a good, a good plan, huh? Uh, essentially, well, I agree with that. Even though uh, catch is usually included, <laughs> just just as catch.hpp. Although we are changing that. Okay. Yeah, I, I was talking to uh, Martin about that. You should change that. Well, we are changing that. You can do it either way, but. Um, so uh, essentially, what you're doing is you're putting the namespace into the file system. Yeah. You're avoiding clashes with, with other libraries, you know, once sure. they are okay. in the common. And space. it would be great if the modules specification could say something like that. I don't know if it's not compulsory right now, but if std.core could mean, hey, std is always compulsory to define the, the, the root of the library or the package that you are managing, that would be amazing. It's not good enough to put it in a in a folder. In other words, if I have a folder that's my library, can I put my header in my library slash my header? Is that is that not good enough? That the the library name really needs to be in the header file name. That the strict the strict thing that you want is uh, the thing that the dependency checker also gives you, which is that all the header files that you're including, all the include paths that you're using, should only be able to resolve to a single header file. No matter what inclusion path you're using. As in, if I'm reordering inclusion, inclusion paths, that should have no effect on which headers I'm getting. And that is the, the strict mathematical requirement on what you need. But the, the more loosely, what can I actually do about it requirement is that something should have a header name that is uniquely identifying with whatever thing you're making. And in such a way that nobody, unless they pick the exact same name, will have a conflict with it. So, so in other words, theoretically, I'm okay as, as long as I'm always included with... Someone says include 
library slash my file name. But because somebody could just say include file name and the build system could have an include path, um, if my file name is just open.hpp, it could clash with some other library that's open.hpp. So that's yes. just not acceptable. Even though right. in theory it would work as long as there's a discipline by the implementations to always include mylib slash open.hpp. But we know that we can't enforce that discipline on callers, so that's a non-starter. So the library name has to be in the header file name. That is a, that is a question, actually. What's that? Can you not enforce it? Um, well, how could you prevent me from including... I'm using your library, and your library's structure is library name slash open.hpp. In my code, I say pound include open HPP, and then I tell the build system, by the way, here's my include path, which includes my library. Well, the last step is exactly where you're going wrong. You have a build system that you can tell that this is something, some corner case that I'm just avoiding doing right, and I'm just going to go around it. Yeah, but I, what I'm saying is, from the library's point of view, the library can't enforce it. You're saying the build system could enforce it, and I'm saying fine, but my question was, what can the library author do? And I think I got an answer. I like that answer. Well, yeah, the library author can't do it. You can yeah. uh, you can make it as best as you can. You can make it so that people will will likely do the right thing, but you can't force them to. Well, you can if you change your header name and you put your, put the library name in your header name. Of course, if somebody comes along and reuses your library name, well, they don't. <laughs> well, or somebody comes along and renames your header file to cache.hpp, then you have a conflict right away. <laughs> I should say that all of uh, Cache's internal headers have the the cache underscore prefix. I think is what John was suggesting. The, the other piece of good news here, by the way, is that um, hash includes don't have ADL currently. Yeah, ADL doesn't apply at that point. <laughs> there, there's been a question raised, actually, um, I think uh, Diego was touching on it a moment ago, and it's also been talked about in the in the chat uh, about the, um, uh, the relationship with modules. Um, and I think uh, the, the point that Diego was making was um, was whether... Uh, the uh, the module path with with, with the dots, uh, whether the, uh, the the prefix part of that could represent a uh, a component, um, and I think the current status is is not that it, that the whole path with all the dots is is just a single identifier. Uh, is that the, the current thinking? Right. Uh, yes. I know there's been some confusion over that, and um, some people wish it were different. I don't know if there's there's any chance of, of that changing though. Uh, I, I think for modules, uh, and I think we have a good opportunity here, uh, I think we should just establish a convention that yeah, the leading part of the module name, all those dot components, actually identifies uh, uh, probably a package would be a good term for it. Uh, so, for example, boost.datetime.io, right? So, boost.datetime will be the library identifier or package identifier where the IO would be the the actual module name inside that package. So that sounds fairly reasonable and easy to agree on, at least at this early stage. The other day we were arguing in, in, in Slack about using the Java thing like org, package name, and then uh, and then the the header or the equivalent. Uh, and I wouldn't oppose to that. I mean, if it would be boost org dot boost dot date, that would be. I think I would be good with that. I'm not sure. I think yeah, the thing is I'm that it's, sure. it's a good idea. It works, but it has a big corner case that many C plus plus developers are not mentally aligned with Java developers, and they will react allergically to something something proposed that looks like Java. So, as much as the proposal might have merit, people will probably not accept it. Uh, and I think we'll end up with most libraries having com.github uh, prefix, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so not But is that wrong? Yeah, but it's still something to disagree with. It's kind of meaningless, meaningless, right? Yeah, but if you have a string component, then string.something will still collide. So, and I, I bet that we, many people will come with a string component. So, if we just add another, it will be the org, it is me. Dot string then we're done yeah so there should be some kind of way of making sure that the, the name you're choosing for your modules is independent of everybody else 
without having a global repository. We have to be very creative with names. Yes. Well, we have the same name, the same problem with package names. So might as well use a package name as a leading part of the module name, right? You have to solve that problem there. So might as well piggyback on that solution. I think this is, is this touching on the, the problem that was identified by, I think uh, Izzy brought this up at CPPCon, which basically said you're going to have to put, with modules, you're going to have to put a C++ compiler into your build system in order to identify what needs to be built. I think that's what she was saying. Is there's no way, because this, the C++ language never considers what a file name is, except in pound include. Um, and it doesn't include, you know, there's no mapping between what a file name is and what's in it. And if you're going to make modules work, there needs to be that kind of mapping at some level. And if you have to build that mapping by looking in the file and saying, well, what modules are included in this header, then you've got to have to compiler to do that. And so you've got to put a compiler in your build system. That is actually part of what was proposed at Rappersville by, I think, Gabriel Race. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. Uh, who proposed that at the top of every uh, module file, you would start with a module declaration and the yeah. imports and exports. And at that point, the preamble ends and the regular source starts. And the regular source can only uh, contain regular includes and nothing else. Which means that if you want to have such a, a compiler part of your build system, it would only need to do this preamble and not the entire file. Right. Yeah, I think but, that was part of the Atom proposal that made it into the merged proposal, if I remember rightly. Yes. Right. And the, the big discussion around that was that most people had no idea how the preamble would be relevant for the compiler itself, because for it, it doesn't matter. But for this situ situation, it's a really, really big deal. Writing a compiler for a preamble takes me five days of work. Writing a C++ compiler, I'm going to be 60 by the time I'm done. <laughs> I would say that build system will, will uh, implement their own parsers for this preamble and, and won't rely on the compiler directly. If you can get away with a simple one, they will definitely do their own. In the same way that I already have a parser that uh, checks out all the includes in your in your code. Yeah. yeah. And it's Actually, optimized to do that and just that. And the same, same thing will happen with modules. Actually, I have a, 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 a parser for... We have module support in build too, so we had to implement a, a, a import declaration parser. And it was actually fairly painless and easy exercise. So uh, I think people, it was in a sense a knee-jerk reaction, oh, you have to parse C++, but in fact, you know, you only need to parse things at the outset and it's not that difficult to do. So that was our experience. And it will be even easier to do in the merge proposal because, you know, you'll only need to parse the preamble. You don't need to parse the whole translation unit. So. And also going back to what John said, I think that people kind of conflate two problems. The first problem is discovering the set of imports by each translation unit, which I think will be well is addressed by the merge proposal to probably the best level that we can hope for. And the second problem is how do you map those to the actual file names? And I think that is the purview of the build system. So. I think it, 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 it's useful to separate the two and not to kind of lump them together. So we're, uh, we're kind of, I'm not sure exactly what time we started because we started a little late, but we're kind of pushing the, the end. And um, I do want to, I'm going to make a soft announcement here, meaning I'm, it may not actually happen. <laughs> um, we're talking about having um, a tool time at CPPCon. In other words, it would be an entire evening where... Um, rather than having formal talks, uh, people could go into a room where there's tables set up saying, go over here if you want to know how to use this tool, and there's an expert there who will help you with that tool. And um, we haven't worked out all the details, but the idea is um, if, you, if you want to learn more about how to use maybe Jenkins because you want to do um, continuous integration or something like that, maybe they will have someone there Maybe they won't be someone from Jenkins. Maybe it's not a Jenkins author or something like that, but is in fact someone who's willing to represent and help people figure out how to do that. Um, and we'll have this as an evening session. And um, I I can't really announce anything officially because I'm recruiting someone to take this on. 
He's a really amazing individual who, if I can talk him into it, I'm sure he'll do a really, really good job. Um, but, uh, but we, so we can't officially announce anything yet, but this is the idea. And, um, what I'd love to see is because I think, um, I think that there are people who would love to be able to say, well, I'd like to learn more about Conan or learn more about Bill 2. And I, um, I'm intimidated by reading the documentation because it doesn't seem to apply to exactly what I'm trying to figure out. And if I, if I could just talk to a human that's used it for a while, um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping to do. So that's my goal for at CPPCon is to try this out where we have an evening where people can take their laptops in and have, you know, a real session with someone who knows what they're talking about for the tool. Um, and maybe you guys would be interested in that. Like I said, we haven't actually announced it yet, but when we do, the first thing we're going to try to do is promote and get people willing to talk about tools. And so even if you personally can't be there, maybe you could work with someone who you know is um, good with your tool and get them to volunteer to represent you. Um, but of course, I'd love to have all you guys at CPPCon. I, I hope that goes without saying. <laughs> um, I think that's a great idea. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I've mentioned it to people, they've mostly been pretty positive. So, um, so I'm hoping to, hoping to make that work out. Um, I do want to, we had a few announcements we wanted to talk about. I think the call for speakers for meeting C++ and Pacific C++, is that now over? That like ended? It's ending today. Today. Okay. Um, where depending on what time zone you're in today might be a different day, but, um, I think those are wrapping up. However, uh, C++ on C still accepting, uh, speaker submissions. Correct, Phil? Uh, that is correct. The call for papers or call for speakers is open till the end of July. Okay. Because you're, you're, you're not actually, uh, you're further out than those. I mean, you're not till next year, so you've got a little bit more time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, although because it's uh because it is a first year trying to get a little bit ahead as well to give us more time. Um, uh, CPPCon, our uh, uh, call for speakers closed uh, a bit ago. And in fact, we now are in the process where most of the, uh, well, in fact, all the submissions got really good coverage from the program committee. Those of you that are on the program committee, I want to give you a big thank you. Huge, huge job done and done in a good, timely manner. Now it's a, a matter of taking all that information uh, from the program committee and putting and making making the actual decisions of who's going to be accepted, who's not going to be accepted, and making a, a real program out of that. But we've got a lot of great raw material to put that in place. But our big announcement at CPPCon was a call for volunteers. And what made that different this year is we've now announced a grant program. And I'm really excited about the grant program. In the past, the deal has been most people who attend CPPCon, their company pays their way. And that works out great for us. Works out great for the for the attendee. That's great. But there are people who are, for one reason or another, their company's not going to pay their way. And so what we've done in the past is we have the volunteer program. The volunteer program says, you don't have to pay for registration. You volunteer. You help us put on the program. Anybody who's appeared at CPPCon has seen the people in the aqua shirts. They help with sessions. They help with registration. They're just all around great people. And in exchange for that effort, they don't pay for registration. And almost all those volunteers have come from the local area because for people whose company aren't going to pay for registration, they're probably also not going to pay for lodging and flying in. So almost everybody has been local. We have tried to figure out how to get around that for a couple of reasons. And what we've announced is a grant program. Now, it's pretty small the first year. I think we'll expand it in the future if it works well. But this is an application process. Essentially, if you want to be a volunteer, we've pretty much taken all volunteers. Anyone who wants to be there, um, we'll waive your registration and you can help out. But for a limited number of people, if you would like us to pay your costs, we can pay uh, travel costs and lodging costs. We'll basically put you up in one of the official hotels. Um, and and um, But... The, but it's very competitive because we have a limited number of people. So there's actually an application process and you'll uh, uh, fill out a form and send us a resume and even an essay about how you've been involved in the committee because in, in the community, because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are engaged with the community. Either there's a number of ways to be engaged, help run a local user group, uh, be a library author, do reviews of libraries. Um, there's just lots of ways to be involved in the community. And if you are involved and you want to be at CPPCon, and your company isn't going to pay your way, this is an opportunity. And I'm 
really excited about. I know it's not going to affect a lot of people because it's a pilot program and there's not a lot, but it is an opportunity. And for the right people, it's going to be a very special opportunity. So I'm really excited about it. Um, we have an announcement. You go to cppcon.org uh, and uh, and read the details and then fill out the application. But um, send me send me an email if you have any questions about it. But it's but I'm really excited about that program. Um, any other announcements? One thing I wanted to say actually, um, the the topic we've been talking about today, I feel like we sort of barely scratched the surface of it. Absolutely, it's really just getting going in its current form. And uh, there are also uh, quite a few people that I wanted to get on today that um, that couldn't make it because of the timing. Particularly uh, Robert Schumacher, who was also there in Rapper's Will. Um, he wanted to be on, um, but we couldn't work out the time. Uh, I think, think we'll definitely do something like this again in the comparatively near future. Uh, I don't know exactly when, so um, it's not the last you can hear on, on this. Right. Um, so I don't think we have a specific episode to announce at this point for next week, but we will... Uh, we will try to, we took the week off because uh, both of us were in Switzerland for different reasons, but we were both in Switzerland and um, and there wasn't a way to, to get the show together. But we're, our goal is to try to be, uh, try to be weekly, uh, try to be, um, uh, try to be for you, there for you in a regular way. We will switch the times around, uh, try to make it a little bit more convenient for people in Europe sometimes, and maybe a little more convenient for people in North America. Um, that's, uh, that's what we want to do. Um, I really, really wanted to rant on contracts. Uh, there's an issue there, but I don't think we have time. So that's my tease for the next episode is you're going to hear John rant on contracts. In general, love the idea, love even the way it's been specified. I just have one nit to pick and you're going to hear me go off and, uh, and scream about that. So, uh, so, that's, uh, <laughs> so that's till next time. Um, uh, I, th I think we've covered things. And I really want to thank those of you who have been willing to uh, join us at this hour. Uh, it's been great. I, I really love this. And I completely agree with Phil. I think we've just scratched the surface and we've got a lot of work ahead of us and a lot to talk about. And um, I'm really, uh, really pleased that you guys seem to have a lot of agreement because I think that's that's where we've got to get started. We can still disagree, and I think that's good for us. Um, but until then, I'm going to uh, ask us all to wish all of our listeners and viewers uh, safe coding till next time. So until next time, safe coding, everybody. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Thank you. Thanks very much.